Healthcare on Filter. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan. I appreciate you tuning in to this episode of Vaccine Hesitancy. Every time I think I'm not going to do an episode on COVID-19, I break my promise and I find something to talk about, and this time is vaccine hesitancy. It's hard to believe that there's some vaccine hesitancy in 2022, but there is, and I believe that some of this because of public health messaging and what has happened over the past couple of years including the politicization of the pandemic. And for this, I've invited Tara Haley, who is an independent science health journalist, author, professional speaker, and who has really been reporting on vaccine hesitancy for a long time, way before the pandemic and way before the um, COVID-19. In fact, she did write Uh, two books. One of them is called Vaccination Investigation, the History and Science of Vaccines. And I think that's really important because since the COVID-19 pandemic has emerged, there has been so many folks who have claimed expertise about vaccines, mechanisms of action, virology. Pretty much everybody became a virologist and a vaccinologist. And we know that this is not the case. So I wanted to talk to Tara because she has done some work of this, she uh, on this, she's reported on this, and really, what struck me is um, a Twitter thread that she actually talked about many of the um, hesitation that people have had with the vaccines uh, were actually related to some. You know, she's expected that that this is something that was going to happen, and almost that uh, I told you so. So with that in mind, I've asked Tara Haley to join me on Healthcare Unfiltered, talk about vaccine vaccine hesitancy. You can check out all of her work on Tara Haley, T-A-R-A-H-A-E-L-L-E.net. And as always, don't forget to subscribe to Healthcare Unfiltered, to let me know how I'm doing by direct messaging me on Twitter or sending me an email. And you can watch all of these episodes on my YouTube channel, Chadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered, and check out my website, www.chadinabhan.com. Without further ado, Tara Haley on Healthcare Unfiltered. All right, folks. Well, I'm really... Uh, uh, pleased and honored by uh, being joined today on Healthcare Unfiltered by uh, Tara Haley, uh, who has generously accepted my invite to come on the podcast um, to talk a little bit about vaccine hesitancy. We're probably going to tackle a wide array of of topics pertaining to vaccines and hesitancy. And I thought this topic is really relevant because um, I'll admit, I didn't think we'll be talking about this a couple of years in and a year after the vaccines, but that is where we are. And what struck me is a, is a tweet thread that she actually um, did uh, probably almost a month ago now, and, and we'll, ta- we'll put that in on the link. Um, Tara, welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. I know you're always busy, so I appreciate you taking some time of your busy schedule. Um, you have a very impressive and a long list of accomplishments and 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 so on that uh, uh, my listeners and viewers uh, could definitely see on your website. But tell us a little bit about you and and, and what you do and and um, and uh, you know how do you spend uh, your day? Well, thank you. Um, I'm pleased to be here. Um, I am a science journalist, and I have been reporting on 
uh, infectious disease, vaccines, vaccine hesitancy, medical research, broadly speaking, pediatrics, women's health, those, you know, those main areas for about 13 years. Um, I, I actually, it's kind of funny. I got into this because I was in grad school for journalism and I had my son while I was in school. And uh, I found that I had lots of questions about vaccines. And because I was in school in my journalism graduate program, I was able to persuade one of my professors to let me kind of use the whole semester to sort of investigate vaccines really in depth. And I even, I audited an epidemiology class and I took a medical ethics class. I kind of really threw myself into it and interviewed people all across the spectrum. People, you know, the, the extreme anti-vaccine people, the sort of in-between people, the people at the CDC. And that ended up becoming part of my, uh, my master's thesis. That's what that grew into. And so I kind of have been doing that ever since. And a lot of that has been including spending time in what I call the trenches of the mommy wars, right? Where, you know, the, you know, breast versus bottle or circumcision or, you know, anyone who's a parent who's been on social media with these questions knows how intense those questions get. And it really pushed me to dig deep into the evidence and sort of find out the answers to these different questions and to recognize that there's not clear answers on some of them. So some questions have really straightforward answers with the evidence and some of them, the evidence is more circumspect, right? It's, it's not, uh, it's, it's more equivocal. We're still gathering data or there's just not a straightforward answer. Um, and so it was during this time that I, I encountered lots of people with vaccine hesitancy and recognized that they weren't all the same. First of all, they had different concerns, different anxieties, different worries. They dealt with them in different ways. Some people delayed vaccines, some selected vaccines and, and skipped others. Some people wanted to get all of them, were scared to, you know, there's all different kinds, you know, some spread them out. Um, and I started learning, as I started digging into this and talking to experts in vaccine hesitancy, I very quickly learned that I needed to talk to social scientists, that it wasn't just, you know, it wasn't infectious disease or pediatricians folks. And that's when I started to learn about cognitive biases. And it, 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 I you know, gradually put together how much the, you know, the, the things that, well, uh, let me define quick what a cognitive bias is. When you are driving your car down the road and you're noticing things, right? You, you notice like the squirrel that's about to cross the road, or you see some kids on a lawn that are throwing a ball to each other. You notice those things because they're the things that might present a hazard to you, right? Because the ball might go into the street or the squirrel might cross the street, but you don't notice every single squirrel on every single tree. You don't notice like kids in the windows. You don't notice, you don't read every single street sign. You don't read every single store sign because you don't need that information, right? Your body doesn't need it. And if, you're, if your brain were to take in all of that at the same level, you would have sensory overload. You would not be able to live because you'd be paying attention to everything. So that's called a heuristic. That's heuristics. It's, it's that selective attention. And we need that to survive. If, you know, if the cavemen went out into the forest to go hunting and they paid attention to every single monkey, bug, and spider, they would miss the, the snake they're about to step on that's going to kill them, right? So they, they have to have that. The problem is that when we develop that, it turns into biases where our selective attention there, there's different ways that our brain directs our attention that can cause us to miss things that are important and things that we don't perceive in the way that we would normally, you know, want to perceive them if we were thinking in a, in a strictly rational way. You know, a, a robot would be able to sort all that out with algorithms, but our brains don't work like algorithms do. And so we, it's sort of like this more, you know, like a spaghetti bowl mix of stuff that's rational 
emotional cognitive biases all kind of mixed together and I know I've just sort of rambled I went from I went from who are you to, to jumping right into it all sorry I, know. I also <laughs> ramble a lot <laughs> um, but to go back to me okay so I've written a couple books uh one vaccination I, was investigation. Say, I mean you, you yeah. you've done this for a while you've had a couple of books yeah yeah and um and then another one was the informed parent which I co-wrote with uh, Emily Willingham she's an evolutionary biologist and science journalist and we we basically looked at all those questions, like what does the evidence say about all these things? Um, I've written a couple science books for kids as well. Um, and I have done a TED talk on vaccine hesitancy, which kind of goes into sort of an overview of these different cognitive biases. And just a personal thing about me, I live in uh, Texas in the Dallas area with my husband and two children and four dogs and bearded dragon. And as of today, 14 rats. Oh boy, <laughs> yeah. that's a lot. My husband, uh, he agreed to two new rats and I came home with three, uh, which is kind of, <laughs> what, what's, kind of what's, an what's, what's the story behind the rats? I just, I love the little suckers. <laughs> they're adorable. They're very similar to their, I mean, they're not quite as smart as dogs, but they are actually very smart and they have individual personalities. And um, so we have like uh, two rat mansions in my, in the area that is my office slash the classroom for the kids. It's not really my office anymore since our kids are at home now, but um, yeah. yeah. So uh, we have, I, I just got three little girls um, the new girls. So, <laughs> we, and you have uh, a lot of information about you. What's your website? Uh, it's my name, T A R A H A E L L E dot net. Um, and it's, it's actually kind of still under, uh, construction a bit. Like there's, there's good information on there, but there's, it's not complete yet. So apologies to people who are looking at it. I'm still kind of working on parts of it. And I know you blog and write for for Medium, um, yes. and, and and I don't know if you're still doing some stuff for Forbes and other. Uh, I used to write for Forbes. I don't write for them anymore. And I was actually I'm thinking about taking some of my old Forbes pieces and moving them over to Medium as sort of like a flashback, you know, mm -hmm. um, blast from the past article. Um, because uh, the I, I'm just to be completely transparent. I was my work when I was at Forbes was monetized, but only back to a couple of months. And my, my work at Medium is monetized. And so um, I want to, I'd rather people read my stuff at Medium than at Forbes. Yeah, no, <laughs> We're all hustling, right? I'm going to be totally transparent that's, about that. That's totally, <laughs> it's totally fair. It's capitalism, hey. Mm -hmm. so, so what I want to talk to you about, Tara, is really the subject of vaccine hesitancy. Because there's a lot we can talk about, right? I mean, and it's impossible oh, yeah. to cover everything in... Right in one hour, but you know, we'll see what we can get to. But really the, the umbrella of what I wanna discuss is vaccine hesitancy and, and really how we link that to some of the behavioral and cognitive biases, mm -hmm. but also maybe some of the lessons learned from the pandemic, because I think that in, at least as an observant, I feel there are a lot of issues that were done wrong and, and, and some of it, Oh is, yes, right. Forget a novel. You could write an encyclopedia. Yeah, and, but some of it is also <laughs> some of it is communication. The way things communicated. I think some public health officials could have done a better job. There's a lot of oh, things goodness, going yes. on. <laughs> I mean, I, but I want to go back to vaccine. Let's start with vaccine hesitancy because you okay. actually have worked on this way before the pandemic. I mean, yeah. I, I listened to your TED talk from 2016 that was on your website. So you're not one of those individuals who basically 
you have not risen to fame about vaccine hesitancy because of the COVID-19. This is something you have right. studied and worked on. Did, did this start when you had your, your child? Like, is this the reason that you wanted to invent? Like, how did this start? Yeah, it, that was basically where it started because I had my son in 2010 and he was, uh, well, you know, I was pregnant in 2009. So my, my quest to learn things was in 2009. But um, I actually, I tell people this all the time. I refused the, the hepatitis B vaccine when my first son was born. The hepatitis B vaccine is recommended on the day of birth. And I had not gotten far enough in my research that I felt comfortable giving him a hep B vaccine on the first day. I was like, what is the point of this? I don't understand. And I, I joke because my second son, who was then born in 2014, I think I asked the doctors three times, did you give him the hep B shot yet? So, so I mean, for, you know, it, I, it made, a, and I was actually in the midst of writing my book, The Informed Parent, when I was pregnant with my second son. So I was kind of very much immersed in the, the evidence anyway, at that point. But what I found, you know, 2010 is when the Lancet article published by Andrew Wakefield, the discredited gastroenterologist from the UK who connected the MMR, the measles, mumps, uh, rubella vaccine to autism, um, fraudulently so. That was the year that his Lancet article was retracted in 2010. And it was right when I was learning about all of this. I think it was 2010, it may have been 2011, but you know, there was, there were a lot of headlines about that, but there had already been headlines for several years saying, you know, this study shows no link between autism and MMR. This study shows no link between MMR, you know, and um, I, you know, I was concerned about my child's health, obviously, like so many people are. And so I wanted to dig into it. And I, as a journalist, I had the advantage that our, we're sort of trained to be suspicious of everybody, first of all, we're trained to be, you know, to root for the underdog, if you will. We're trained to look at everything as like skeptically as possible. And so I didn't, you know, I wanted to talk to everybody. I talked to, you know, I met the founder of the National Vaccine Information Center, who, which is one of the largest anti-vaccine groups in the country. I interviewed, I've spoken with RFK Jr., I've interviewed Sherry Tenpenny, you know, the people who are kind of considered the very fringe. Uh, individuals. Um, and then I also spoke with people at the CDC and I spoke with uh, Paul Offit, who, you know, was the co-developer of the rotavirus vaccine. And then I spoke to people who posited themselves in the in-between spaces like Robert Sears. Um, so I talked to as many people of these as I could and tried to kind of piece together the landscape, if you will. So I was, it was less, at that point, it was less about the evidence than sort of learning like who the players are and where they fit on this landscape. Then I started to look at the evidence that each of them was sharing with me and putting it together. And because I was auditing a class in epidemiology, because I was taking the medical ethics class and I had started writing at this point for medical studies, I realized how much I didn't know about medical studies when I was reading them. And I think that's a really important point because a lot of people start looking at these studies and every single person I spoke to would point to studies. I mean, Sherry Tenpenny, who is quite, she's about as fringe anti-vaccine as you can get. Um, she's even one, listed as one of the 12 sort of, you know, disinformation dozen folks. She will give you a list of 30 studies showing that vaccines are dangerous. And I looked at those 30, well, now it's a lot longer, but I've looked at those studies and the vast majority of them do not say what she thinks they say. And I don't know 
if that's intentional, if she knows that and is being dishonest, or if she really just doesn't understand how to read, I, I don't know. I don't speculate on people's motives in that regard. But, um, you know, she was misrepresenting, whether intentionally or not, what those studies showed. And I learned very quickly how much I didn't understand about reading medical studies. So I started to work on that. I went to a course called Medicine in the Media at the National Institutes of Health, where I spent four days immersed in learning how to read a medical study and what the difference was between relative risk and absolute risk and what a p-value was and what confidence intervals meant and all of that and methodologies and, you know, different types of, of observational studies and different, you know, formats for our randomized controlled trials, you know, all of that. I also did a CDC fellowship where they kind of went over similar things and I was a member of the uh, Association of Healthcare Journalists, and I am now their core topic leader for medical studies, which means my job for them is to teach other journalists how to read medical studies. I, I do that every year. I've been doing that for about six years. So it, it was my discovery of how much I didn't know. There's a quote of me. There's an article in um, The Open Notebook, which is aimed at science journalists, which talks about reading medical studies. And there's a quote in that article where I say that I showed up at an association of healthcare journalists workshop on reading medical evidence and listened and went, oh my God, I'm doing this all wrong. And I was, I, I didn't know what I was doing. And I think what's really important is journalists are comfortable learning that they're screwing things up they're, or they should be good journalists are, there's certainly ones who aren't. And when you have that humility to recognize that you don't know what you don't know and okay, now I know what I don't know, so I have to learn that stuff. You invest the time that you need to, if you're gonna cover that topic, the responsible thing to do is invest the time learning what you need to know. And once I did that, I could look at those studies that all of those people were sending me and put together the evidence myself. And if I had questions, I could ask a wide range of people, You know, I, I spread out who I asked about. And it, it became really clear that okay, there are people misrepresenting this evidence. There's other people who are accurately representing it. And there's some people who are vaccine evangelists that are not actually very helpful because they don't acknowledge the risks of vaccines. And once I had a sense of all of that landscape and that evidence, you know, then I, that's, I'm kind of rambling again. I'm sorry. I no, but, but, I, but I guess, Tara, what's missing in this in listening to you, I guess, you know, the reality is, I mean, let's, when you were pregnant and you were about to have your child, you decided that you can't trust at the time, face value, the CDC and public yes. health officials. And you went into doing your own research and then you yep. came to a conclusion that yep. this is what I should do. But the reality is not, A, not everybody knows how to do the research. B, exactly. they may not have the bandwidth why didn't you trust the public health officials and the CDC back then? What was going on that made you even decide, I don't trust them, I want to do my own research? Very good question. That actually gets to the heart of vaccine hesitancy, which is all about trust. Um, part of it probably was that I was a journalist. We're trained to not trust anybody. <laughs> um, and like I said, I, it's funny because another journalist who writes in this space, uh, Melinda Wenner Moyer, she's been fantastic. I recommend her work. She's got a, a great new book out. And um, she and I talk a lot about this stuff because we cover a lot of the same things. She actually came to covering vaccines the same way I did, where she was suspicious about it and wanted to kind of, you know, hear it. I think the reason, first of all, journalism itself played a role in how I felt about it. 
Um, there's a really great article by Curtis Brannard at Columbia Journalism Review called Sticking with the Truth. And it explores how the media contributed to vaccine hesitancy for a good 10 years where the reporting used false balance. False balance is where you treat two different perspectives as equal when the evidence strongly favors one and not the other. So it's like, okay, here's what this parent has to say, and here's what this doctor has to say. And then you treat those as equal when they're not equal. Or you quote one pro-vaccine doctor and one quote unquote anti-vaccine doctor without acknowledging that the anti-vaccine doctor represents like 0.01% of all doctors. So that's what false balance is. We saw it a lot with climate change as well, right? You quote one climate skeptic and one global warming you know, proponent. And that I think is where the source of a lot of my mistrust came from because I had spent 10 years casually happening to see it out of the corner of my eye, you know, oh, autism, vaccines, autism. And I never paid close attention because at that time I wasn't a parent, but it was there, right? It was in the background. And that sowed the seed of that mistrust. I think the the fact that journalists presented that information um, very poorly and did not also explain how scientific research works, right? The fact that, you know, it's an iterative process. It's not like you do one experiment and boom, you have the answer. Eureka is not how it works. Um, it's, it's a slow process and it, it takes years to go through and test things and, and replicate studies and do different versions of it. And so all of that I think was in the background. And then there was the fact that I actually had a lot of trust in the CDC, to be honest. I had been vaccinated myself. I had gotten my own vaccines when I traveled overseas. So I, you know, I didn't have any good reason not to. The thing that caught me the most was how many vaccines there were. And I think this happens to a lot of people. I was vaccinated with the standard ones back in the 70s, which were the MMR, the polio, and the DTP. Today, we have more than twice as many of those. And so the first thought in your mind is, oh my gosh, that's a lot of little needles going into my little baby. Do they really need all of those? I'm okay. I didn't, you know, I didn't have that problem. You know, I didn't have to worry about those things, which by the way, is survivorship bias, right? I survived. So I, I, I didn't have those and I'm okay. It's the, it's the classic car seat, right? Like I, I sat in the front seat of my parents' car when I was three and didn't have a car seat and I'm just fine. Well, yeah, but all the three-year-olds who went through the window aren't here to tell you so. Um, so there was that. So it was the too many too soon argument that got me. And that was, so the combination of you know, personal experience, I had this many, but not that many, of the media coverage of it, of the natural inclination I have to sort of, you know, question authority in general and question everything. And that, that is a vaccine type right there. There's different sort of, within vaccine hesitancy, there are different types of thinking and people. And one of them is sort of like the, you know, the contrarian who just questions all evidence, period, right? Regardless of where it comes from. Um, so I think it was all of those things together that made me you know, it's like it, at my heart, I thought the CDC was mostly right. So it wasn't like I thought the CDC was involved in a conspiracy or was trying to deceive me. Instead, I worried, I think, without realizing the term for it, that maybe they were all just so excited about vaccines that they hadn't done adequate research like they should have. Right. Right. Uh, which was actually quite a that I mean, now that I think about it, that's a pretty hubristic way of thinking. Right. Like <laughs> here I am like this little mom and I think I might, you know. I think all this collection of doctors and scientists who've dedicated their lives to studying all this might have missed something important. 
now I look back on that and that there's a lot of hubris there, but at the time, you know, you're focused on your little baby and like, you know, I, Paul Offit, who is a big vaccine advocate. And like I said, he developed the rotavirus vaccine. He's at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. He will say vaccine is a fundamentally violent act. You're sticking a bunch of needles into this little child that you don't know what's in them. And that's scary. Now today we, it's, you know, COVID vaccination hesitancy. We want to say that's different, but it's really not. It's well, going. Let's, yeah, let's let's talk about that because I think yeah. that's a very good segue. Because I mean, when the pandemic started, um, you know, I mean, I don't think. I mean, I, I know uh, I'm not a vaccine scientist. I did not think we'll have a vaccine in a year, frankly. I mean, if you think nobody about thought the, that. I right? that blew my mind. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think you know, we all. I think the vaccine, we the pandemic. If we think March 2020, we probably had vaccines by the end of 2020. As you were following the development of these vaccines and what's going on, two questions come to mind for me. Number one, whether you expected there would be some hesitancy. And number two, which I want to really spend more time on a little bit, is to how much of having so many opinions by anybody, especially on social media when it gets disseminated, contribute to this. And if you recall, Tara, one of the things that I I recall I was actually upset about, I don't know if you were upset as well like I was, but there was this, you know, it was obviously an election year, so politics were like big, big, big thing, but there was a letter that was written by over 100 scientists, including Eric Topol, one of the scientists who wrote this huge letter that was directed to Pfizer, one of the manufacturers of the vaccines, telling them to slow down, you know, don't actually... Uh, manufacture this until after November because you know we want to we want to make sure safety and all of these things and 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 it may it makes me wonder so many of these similar examples that were I think politically motivated frankly because you know nothing magical was going to happen after November third except the elections right how much does this in your opinion so there's the vaccine hesitancy which we know like you talked about the science the autism whatever people were thinking. And then in COVID, we had the additional element to it, which is the politics. These letters were written all over. And I think we came in full circle where, of course, there will be more hesitancy with all of this together. Take me yeah. through your thought process as you were witnessing this in real time. And, mm-hmm. and I bet you, you were telling people, well, I know what's going to happen. <laughs> somewhat, to somewhat extent. First, I want to say that I was just talking a lot about vaccine hesitancy with childhood vaccines, right? The COVID vaccine hesitancy, I think a better analog for that, there's a lot of echoes from what we see in childhood vaccine hesitancy, but you have to go back to smallpox when smallpox vaccines were being recommended because those were recommended for everybody of all ages, right? And one thing that I think is really interesting that people don't realize is how much of this is not new. And when I say not new, I don't mean like, oh, this is like the 80s when we had concerns about DTP, or this is like the, you know, the 2000s with autism. I mean, this is what we were hearing in the 1830s. <laughs> this is what we heard in the 1890s. Like if you go on to newspapers.com and type in anti-vaccinationist, it will blow your mind how many, in some cases, almost verbatim, like the words are almost verbatim for some of the arguments that are used. So there's certain themes in vaccine uh, fear mongering, I'll say, or fears about vaccines that have echoes that kind of go back centuries. 
and it's the same, you know, they're, they're, they're tweaked a little bit, but the, the core fear is the same. So in that regard, anybody who was studying vaccine hesitancy, we knew that uh, vaccine hesitancy was going to occur with COVID. Now, I will admit, I expected it to take longer to show um, than it did, but that's partly because I didn't expect the rollout to go so quickly, to be honest. Uh, what I would, if you go back on my tweets and you look for this, you'll find it. I'll say our first problem is access, not hesitancy. And it wasn't that I didn't think hesitancy would be a problem. I did, but I thought that access would be the biggest problem in the beginning. And I still think it was access was a huge issue. And it, and it, it was, we actually started focusing on the hesitancy before we had even addressed the access issue. And that's an important distinction because access can be mistaken for hesitancy, you know, not inadequate access is sometimes mislabeled uh, as hesitancy. And I say that because access means not just do you have the physical ability to go in a vaccine. To me, access means, do you have the ability to get to a vaccine conveniently, easily, and with somebody that you trust who can answer your questions about it? That is true vaccine access. And so if you don't have that, it's not necessarily that you're hesitant, it's that you don't have good access. So that, that's one problem I saw early on in the pandemic was that conflating access and hesitancy. I also, I was anxious about how quickly the vaccine uh, trials were occurring. Um, I did think that they were moving really fast. And a lot of us were, a, a lot of people who were in vaccine scientists were, you know, we, if you go back and look in, in like, you know, things that we said and did in, in 2020, it was like, wow, this is going really fast. I'm a little uneasy about it. Here's what we should look for. But once the data came out in December and we started looking at it, I was impressed. I was like, dang, they did it right. They had a good number of people, a huge number of people involved. They looked at this, they looked at that. They paused when they needed to pause. And when I looked at the data, it became really clear. They, they did not skip uh, steps as, as we were, you know, as some people, including myself, were afraid they might. They really did it right. And I think part of that was because Pfizer, you know, Moderna was new to the game, but Pfizer's been in this game a long time, right? And, and people can say, oh, Pfizer's part of big pharma and therefore I should be more suspicious of it. Okay, Pfizer's also been in this game a long time and has more experience and knows what it's doing. So um, when I actually saw the evidence, my concern about the speed went away because I already knew the steps that had been supposedly quote unquote skipped were the parts where uh, you have to get funding in between, or you, you know what I'm saying? Like the, the, the administrative and logistical stuff, not the science stuff. And another thing people don't realize is normally when you do vaccine trials, the reason they take, you know, a couple years is because the vac the disease that you're protecting against is not super prevalent. And so you have to, you know, there has to be time for enough people in both arms to be exposed to the disease and for you to have enough disease cases in the placebo arm. Well, COVID, we didn't have to worry about that. COVID was everywhere. So it did not take long for a lot of people in the placebo arm to get sick. And because they got sick quickly enough, uh, in a way, our inability to control the pandemic early on is why we got a vaccine so quickly because you know it didn't take long to get enough people sick. So I think all of that is important to recognize. And I, I've forgotten the second part of what you said uh, about the- about, uh, It's about, uh, I, think, I think there was- because The politics. Well, it's the subject of vaccine hesitancy. And I always think some of it is messaging. And, and I don't know if you recall, but, but there was this letter that was written by 
over a hundred scientists, you know, and some of them, again, they, they're saying now they're pro-vaccines. That this was, the letter was dated September 29, 2020, and was really asking literally Pfizer to wait until November, like literally by date. Yeah, and, and I think that's weird was, and odd, right? Yeah, that sounds very suspicious to me as well. I mean, I, I, it's hard for me to say if that contributed to hesitancy or not. It's quite possible it did, um, but it definitely sounds politically motivated because what it should come down to is what the data shows. And um, we didn't have a lot of great data in September. So I would say September was far too early to say what you should or shouldn't do because you have to have the data. Everything goes around the data. And uh, to to say you should wait um, before you've even seen the data to know if it's good or not, I I can't imagine another, you know, I, I agree. I think maybe like trying to deny Trump the, quote unquote, win of having um, a vaccine very quickly may have been a motivator there. I mean, I'm, I'm no fan yeah, of Trump. No, I mean, I, 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 uh, I, I mean, I recall I was a little bit surprised when I saw the letter. Um, it was actually on Twitter, was posted, all of that mm-hmm. stuff. And, and then what was so odd is, uh, I mean, if you recall, the election was, I don't know, was it Tuesday or a Wednesday? And then Two days later uh, was the Pfizer data came, came. It's like just, you know, again, I'm trying to think because you're very interested in the cognitive bias and the behavior right. piece, right? And and again, you have, we all know that, um, you know, you've got the U.S. who is a huge melting pot of all kinds of people. Right. When If you think of just an average Joe who's watching this, it makes me wonder whether this contributes to it or not. And I don't know the answer to this. But as an expert yeah. in cognitive bias, it makes it, it makes me wonder whether you think it added anything. To it, it. Well, I mean, it's impossible to separate it all out because one of the things about cognitive biases is they don't operate in isolation. It's not like you can say, oh, I'm subject to confirmation bias here and I'm not subject to omission bias or survivorship bias or, you know, they all kind of mix together. I mean, you can you can label certain arguments excuse me, as a specific, as driven by a specific bias. And you can point to individual biases that contribute to a person's hesitancy, but it's never one thing. It's never like, oh, you have survivorship bias. Let me correct you of that notion. And now you will want to vaccinate. That's not how it works. Um, I often compare the decision to vaccinate after having strong hesitancy as converting religions. And that's not to it's not a great analogy because I don't mean to demean people's faith or suggest that you can just trade faiths. It's to point out that when you have a faith that you are invested in, you have, you are deeply invested in it from multiple levels. And it's not, you know, you've made a cognitive decision to have faith, right? Faith is the, is to make a a belief in something with the the absence of evidence, right? The, The whole idea that you need evidence for faith is, doesn't make sense. So you've made that cognitive decision, but you have emotional and community aspects of that. And with vaccines, it's similar. Like you might have cognitive beliefs about that vaccine that were conscious, but there are emotional ties to that and community ties to that. And nobody changes their, you know, I, I hear a lot of people say, oh, well, I talked to my friend and they're just refusing to vaccinate. I had a long conversation with her and she's still not convinced. Well, you're never going to convince somebody to vaccinate in one conversation. I, I've never done that in my life. And I've persuaded dozens and dozens of people to vaccinate. Um, I also have done almost none of those by myself. 
you know, it usually takes multiple people who are involved, you know, not intentionally, but it's like, you know, one person says this another person says that, and they start to explore on their own. It's always a process. And I think that's really important to recognize because that's why I don't give up. In the case of the politics, I think politics definitely plays a role in vaccine hesitancy, no doubt. I think what, what makes it tricky here is that political identity became entwined and this had been going on for a while. This goes, you know, this is not brand new with vaccine attitude identity, if that makes sense. In other words, your belief about vaccines became entwined with your political identity. So that if someone addressed your belief about vaccines, you took that as an attack on your political beliefs. And when you feel attacked, you immediately, you know, you, you, you dig your heels in and you're, you're, you know, the hair on the back of your neck goes up, you know, you're, you're like that cat, right. That gets like the tail in the air. Um, and, and that's, that's a natural human reaction. I don't mean that demeaningly. Um, and I, I, one, I don't know if that letter or things like that contributed to explicit vaccine hesitancy, but what it probably did do was just enhance the existing us versus them that existed. You know, that binary dynamic of us versus them, it made those scientists on the them side. And that was not good. It's frustrating because I could, you know, we could spend hours talking about all the things I disagreed with during the Trump administration. But one thing that Trump did that was good is he threw a whole lot of money at making a vaccine. I mean, he did not scrimp on the cash. He said, take all this money and do what you need to do. And if nothing else, that was a good policy decision. Okay. So whatever you want to criticize Trump for, that was a good decision. And it did kind of feel like they were trying to steal that from him, right? Uh, you know, to take that, that away. And I can certainly see that causing people who supported Trump to say, oh, well, they're trying to, which is ironic now because so many people who are Trump supporters are, they make up the bulk of people who are refusing the vaccines right now. And I, I, you know, there's some mental gymnastics going on there that we could get into that are that relate to biases. But yeah. it, I, yes, it, the short answer is yes. That letter and things like that could have contributed to it, but not in a direct line. How, how much? How much do you think when it comes to vaccine hesitancy? Some of it was that uh, if you take the vaccine, you still need to wear a mask. If you take the vaccine, nothing changed behavior because you know we've heard a lot of this. And and you know, I mean, I had people like, okay, well. You're telling me I'm going to take the vaccine and nothing going to change in terms of my behavior. I'm not really sure if I take the vaccine, I should be able to do this and that. And I think there were lots of criticisms sometimes where, well, you know, um, yes, you take the vaccine, but you can't spend Thanksgiving with your relatives, stay away from your, your, your I mean, there was a lot of this where people- but The messaging was hor horrific. I mean, there was, I have nothing good to say about the messaging. The, the challenge with that was when the vaccines first came out, one of the problems here is people don't fundamentally understand what vaccines do. Vaccines prevent disease, but vaccines do not necessarily prevent infection. And people don't, most, the average layperson out there doesn't understand or, or didn't until this, you know, they might now, but before the pandemic, the distinction between disease and infection, they may not have understood. Infection is, the pathogen gets into your body and starts replicating, right? It sort of gets a foothold. Disease is, it gets such a foothold that it leads your immune, it invokes an immune response to actually fight against it. And that immune response causes symptoms that you experience. Since most of the symptoms you experience with disease are actually your immune response. Not all of them, but most of them. 
um, you know, a fever is an immune response, right? The, the vaccine's not causing the fever, the vaccine, excuse me, the, well, vaccines can cause fevers, but the, the disease, you know, the pathogen is not causing the fever. The pathogen is causing the immune response, which is the fever. But I think the messaging was, I mean, I can quote so many, even of my colleagues on Twitter and so on. The messaging was, it's going to prevent infection. And, well, I think, and that's what I'm getting to is when, I don't, when no, no, it, I, I yeah. think, I think I'm talking like for the out, Yeah. For, yeah. yeah. When it first came out, there was a, I remember this so well, cause I got into a lot of Twitter arguments and it was really frustrating. When it first came out, some people were trying to emphasize, hey, we don't know yet if this prevents infection. We only know that it prevents disease and we need to proceed assuming that it doesn't prevent infection because very few vaccines actually prevent infection. The problem is we also had a cohort of people saying, oh no, people need this. They need to be able to say, I can take my mask off now because they got the vaccine. And the, there was not, th that fighting, that infighting within the public health community was confusing to the public. And the whole idea of why they were even fighting was missed. The fact that, hey, there's a difference between infection and disease. We don't know yet if infection is prevented by this. So we need to wait and find out. And that's why you're still wearing a mask. Now, then in April, by the time April got there, we learned it does prevent infection. It actually did. And this is where it gets really tricky because again, we, you know, the public's understanding of science is not as iterative as science actually is. And so the nuances and the ways in which science changes, people say, well, the science is changing. They don't realize what that really means. You know, science is always changing. It's a process. It's not a body of knowledge. In April, we found out the vaccines do prevent infection. And that was fantastic news. It was like, oh my gosh, it does prevent infection. This is great. The problem is the CDC took that and said, okay, we're gonna use this as a carrot to encourage people to get vaccinated and say, okay, if you take, you know, if you get vaccinated, you can take off your masks. And that was very poor decision on the CDC's part because they, first of all, the behavioral research would have shown that people were not avoiding the vaccine because they didn't wanna wear a mask. That was not an actual correlation. Um, the people who were, not wanting to get a vaccine, they had already stopped wearing masks. <laughs> they were the ones who were already refusing masks. That, that was the correlation. And so the CDC's decision to say that in May, it made everything worse because it gave carte blanche to every person who had not been vaccinated to say, oh, well, I'm not gonna wear a mask now. And, and you had people on social media saying, I identify as vaccinated, you know, making a joke about it and saying they're not gonna get, you know, they're not gonna wear the mask. And the other danger was not enough people had gotten the vaccine at that point. Access was poor. But Tara, do you remember how much confusion was about the mask? Cloth yeah, mask, oh, surgical mask. Like, you know, I mean, it's like it was all that's over the place. This, well, that's what I'm saying is that the CDC's decision to roll back the mask, it was a bad decision. There was, it also made public health an individual health decision. And that's not how public health works. Um, and, and there was no evidence that giving people the ability to remove their mask if they were vaccinated would encourage vaccination. There was zero evidence for that. Any behavioral scientist would have told you it wouldn't have worked and it didn't work. And the problem is once Delta came along, well, we then found out that the combination of waning from the vaccine and the higher infectiousness of Delta got past the vaccine and it no longer prevented infection. So it did prevent infection for a couple of months. There was like the sweet spot. But then after those couple months went by, 
it was no longer able to prevent infection. And if the CDC hadn't rolled that back, it would have been a lot easier to message that. So let, let me ask you a provocative question. Maybe it's not provocative, but, but maybe we can't prevent infection. I mean, there is no way we can get to zero COVID. I mean, the reality is- Oh, COVID no, no, no. I, when I say prevent infection, I don't mean zero COVID. Anybody who's promoting zero COVID is, uh, that's- <laughs> That went away in February of 2020. I don't know why anybody thought that that was possible. But you know, you know some people did really think. Oh, I know. And there's still people who do. And I think that's a very foolhardy position. Yeah. And I think, and I think, like, I always think, like, whenever, like, whenever you, if the general public, when they see that, because again, we're trying to think of vaccine hesitancy. And I always, and I've said that before, I think the messaging has been so bad that if you're in the general public, you don't even know who to believe anymore. Absolutely. Uh, That's you know, one of I the mean, biggest problems. Yeah, I mean, zero COVID. I mean, COVID is here to stay. It's not right. going to go away. So, so one of the other things that obviously came up, uh, Tara, is, you know, the myocarditis risk. And, and there yes. has been, you know, um, some of this pertaining to children and some of it pertaining to adults. And we've seen some athletes who had like, you know, some some um event yeah, there was the olympic athlete recently who yeah right so so i guess i guess you know one of the things as a physician myself as a as an oncologist which i really was upset about and tell me if i was upset uh, improperly so okay <laughs> but, my, but my my sense is there is nothing wrong there should be nothing wrong in me suggest asking questions to understand adverse event of any intervention. Absolutely. I do that in oncology all the correct. time. But, but the way things happen, like I honestly, like if you really dare to ask the question, like if I would say I am concerned yes. about myocarditis, I would be literally labeled, oh, how dare you? Like this is, there is no risk. I'm like, you know what? There is a risk and I may be afraid about and And, you know, so, yes. so take me through how did the myocarditis increase the divide? And do you think it also fueled vaccine hesitancy? I definitely think it fueled vaccine hesitancy. And I definitely think that what you're saying is true, that the dialogue and the, you know, the way we talk about it has. One of the problems is it depends on who you talk to. There are all these I, you know, pro-vaccine warriors on Twitter who are sort of fanatical about vaccines. <laughs> and they tend to be the ones that are more you know, if you ask a question, they immediately jump on you. I actually, I, I had an interaction with one the other day because I, there's a mother on Twitter that I've spoken, I've interviewed her about her son who had myocarditis. And she was talking to another two people who were getting, you know, arguing with her about the risk. And I jumped in there and I was like, guys, this is a real risk. It, it might be, you know, it happens this often or that often, but her simply mentioning this risk doesn't make her an anti-vaxxer. And I think that's, that is a huge problem we've had. It, what's interesting is people assume that that's how doctors respond. Most doctors, not all, there are definitely doctors who have a problem here too, but most doctors, especially, we'll, we'll talk about pediatricians. If you were to go to your pediatrician and say, I have these concerns, you are not, unless, unless it's a bad pediatrician when there's not, you know, there's a couple of those, but not as many, you are not going to be treated like, oh, you're an anti-vaxxer because those pediatricians have been dealing with those concerns for a long time and they know it's completely legitimate to ask questions. We encourage people to ask questions about every medical intervention they have. Why should it be any different with vaccines? It's completely reasonable to say, 
well, what are the risks? And, you know, am I in a group that would be more likely to experience those risks? Because like with the J&J vaccine and blood clots, there is a risk group, just like with myocarditis, right? Teenage, you know, adolescent boys have a higher risk. They're in a higher group. Um, you know, women who are of childbearing age have a greater risk for the blood clots with the J&J vaccine. Those are reasonable questions to ask. And, you know, it's reasonable to say, well, how bad is COVID going to be for me if I get it? And it's reasonable for you to say, well, how likely is it that I'm going to get COVID, right? All of those things are reasonable questions and people should be able to ask them without being shamed, without being accused of fitting to some category. And good doctors and infectious disease doctors and um, pediatricians and people who have dealt with vaccine hesitancy before will respond honestly. You know, if you, if you go and listen to Paul Offit's talks, he's very clear about the risks and, and will not malign someone because they've asked that question. But there's a whole bunch of other people, including some doctors on Twitter who are just, you know, really strident. I mean, Twitter's not, you know, Twitter's not the place for nuance. <laughs> and it's not, it's, honestly, I don't think Twitter is the real world. Uh, I mean, no, I, it's not the real world. It's this weird microcosm of very, like, very, very, yeah, different. it's, and it's, but so, so yeah, people will get jumped on and that definitely increases hesitancy because if you're trying to ask a reasonable question that you would ask about any medical intervention and someone says, oh, you're a crazy blah, blah, blah. I mean, labor, I, I can, I can tell you. It's going to push you away. It's going to yeah, push you away. I, mean, I can tell you with, with my kids who are young, young boys, teenage boys, I was very nervous about myocarditis because. And that's know, reasonable. Right. I mean, we're all vaccinated in the household. And I literally, to your point, I was calculating if their teachers are uh, vaccinated, I'm vaccinated, my wife is vaccinated, what are the risks? And then we decided to go ahead with the vaccines, but I was very uncomfortable giving three weeks in advance, a three week duration, because right. I felt that there was really data after the second dose uh, to, to be yes. more this. And I ended up actually spreading it to six weeks. And then I gave them- That sounds reasonable dose. to me, yeah. Right, but I can tell you, Actually, for literally, I did not admit this until six months later on one of my podcast shows because I knew there were. If I ever say that publicly, people will say you're crazy. You're not. You're a physician. Yeah, that's part of the that that whole rhetoric is part of the problem. That whole us versus them binary. Uh, one of the important points I make in my TEDx talk, and every time I talk about vaccine hesitancy, I, I emphasize this: is that vaccine hesitancy is a spectrum. It's not like you are pro-vaccine or anti-vaccine. There, there are some people who fall in those categories, but they're at the far ends of the spectrum. Most people fall somewhere along that spectrum where they have this concern or that concern, or they feel mostly confident about vaccines, but they worry that this vaccine was done too quickly and they want to be reassured about why the speed doesn't compromise the safety. Or, you know, it, it's it's not, you know, it's totally normal uh, but, to but be along boosters, that spectrum. Like with boosters right now, there's a lot of these things about boosters, which I think is also fueling hesitancy because, you know, I think Paul Offit, I, I believe you you actually mentioned him. He does actually, in one of, one of the articles I read, he does have some concerns about boosters for young. Yeah, he disagrees with, yeah, he disagrees with boosters for adolescent boys right now. So, 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 um, you know, I mean, if, if Paul Offit disagrees with boosters for adolescent boys, I feel like, and there are other people who are making louder noise on Twitter and social media that we should boost everybody and, and all of that. What, how do we reconcile this? Because that does fuel- well, not, I, I mean, unfortunately, because our public health system is in shambles right now, um, it, it, it does end up coming to you to, to try to figure that out. And it's hard. So that goes back to the trust issue. 
you have to figure out who you trust. And you're, you know, ideally you want to find medical professionals that have the expertise in that area that you trust. And, you know, if you have a couple of them and they disagree, then you're going to have to take their arguments and consider it. You know, Offit's arguments for boosting boys have more to do with the fact that he doesn't think that the boys are at a higher risk for getting the disease. Right. It's not so much the, because the myocarditis, we don't have, so far the data on booster shots does not show a, a big increased risk for myocarditis. It's mostly the second shot. Um, if you make it past the second shot, you're, you're not looking at a big risk with the third shot. Um, and I think his partly probably also is influenced by belief that we need to be focusing more on global vaccination, which I agree with. Um, and it's not a zero sum thing, but it is, you know, I do think that America has not done enough to vaccinate the world. And that is a problem. You know, we've been focusing so much on booster shots locally. Are we doing enough to, to ensure that other countries are vaccinated? Because that affects our public health too. It's not just us being generous, like it's actually necessary. Um, and he is in the minority on that, but I mean, he, he explains his rationale for that. And he still explains that he thinks that, you know, teenage boys in general should definitely get the first two shots. One of the things that frustrated me about the myocarditis discussion, and it's the reason I sort of dug into it deep for my national geographic article is that I kept hearing people say, you know, you have a higher risk of myocarditis with COVID than you do with the vaccine full stop. And that's all they said. They didn't say anything else after that. And when I started digging into it, first of all, the heart effects that you experience with the vaccine and the heart effects that you experience with COVID are not the same. Um, myocarditis, classic sort of viral induced myocarditis is actually pretty rare among kids and teens with COVID. It doesn't happen very often. As your age goes up, the risk goes up. And which is, which is interesting because with the myocarditis with the shot, the risk goes up as the age goes down, right? So there's this weird sort of one going up, one going down. And then if you go down low enough, children like under 12 have a much higher risk of MISC. And that has a very different cardiac effect. That's not, it's still an inflammation of the heart, but it's not myocarditis. It's a, I mean, it's, it's similar. It's myocarditis like, and so it gets hard to discuss it. Now, when you look at it, when you step back and look, okay, let's look at this, not as myocarditis versus myocarditis, but cardiac effects versus cardiac effects. When you look at it that way, yes, the risk of cardiac effects that you should worry about are much greater with COVID than the myocarditis that's experienced with the vaccine. I think what's, I agree. I think what's missing sometimes we don't factor in the risk of catching the infection as well, because you have well, to yes, that's part of it. And we also don't factor in the other stuff that COVID does. Like there was, this, there was this sort of like, you know, laser focus on myocarditis and there was the vast kinds of disability that can occur of the loss of school that can occur. You know, th there's all these other things or one of the most important things in my family, my husband's immune compromised. The reason my kids are vaccinated, I mean, I, I vaccinated them to protect themselves, sure. But the biggest reason I vaccinated my kids is if they brought COVID home to their dad, they might make themselves orphans. And I couldn't have my kids living the rest of their lives knowing they might've killed their dad. So I think the fact that kids are vectors is often left out of the discussion as well. We think about vaccination only as protecting kids. Um, but the, with, with looking at the, um, the risk of catching the disease, in the case of COVID, uh, this is something a lot of uh, doctors said to me, and I agree with it. It's never, you know, it's not if, it's when. 
you are going to be exposed to COVID. I totally There's, agree with that. I yeah. totally agree and with so that. I, and you know what? Yeah. Can I tell you something? When I was saying that, I was also trolled because like, oh my God, no, no, you can't get COVID. Like, you know what? And then all of a sudden on social media, I started seeing all of my colleagues who were masked, double vaxxed, boosted, and they're showing their test results that they were positive. Like, I, well, one thing that is good about Omicron, one thing I'm glad for with Omicron is it <laughs> finally got rid of that ridiculous moral superiority of infection. This idea that if you did everything right, you wouldn't get infected and you were Thank better you than everybody else. That. Thank you for that saying that. That was bullshit. Sorry to excuse my no, language. No, no, it's unfiltered. You can say whatever you want. Okay, okay, yeah. No, that was that whole idea that, you know, oh, you got COVID, you must have done something wrong. That was total bullshit. And it was wrong. It, it, it caused shaming of disease. It, it made people who really did do, quote unquote, everything right and got COVID feel shame when they shouldn't have felt shame, which could have affected, you know, the ability to get treatment. I mean, I, that, that made me so angry. Um, so, you know, the one good thing about Omicron is that it made it almost impossible to escape so that everybody who was like the good little girls and boys who had done everything right got it anyway. Um, you know, I, that sounds awful to say, but I just, that whole, that whole narrative of, you know, you got COVID because you, you acted badly was a bad narrative. <laughs> that, is, that is, that is, you're so right. And I really, it pissed me off a lot. Like you said, no, it was wrong. It was is, so wrong. It is so hard to believe we are doing this so far. I mean, this, this long, and we're still having this issue. A couple of things, Tara, just, I'm, I'm curious your thoughts, because again, what, what what have you developed any thoughts about i don't want to tell you my thoughts but maybe you've seen them on social media about uh, school closure for kids what are your thoughts there that one gets really complicated okay in general we know that the best place for kids to be is in school learning okay that, that that's been unequivocally shown in terms of mental health and educational benefits the problem i've seen is first of all there's not a one size fits all for this Everyone wants to say this is what ha should happen across the country when the country has a lot of differences in how, you know, in resources and political beliefs and so on. Saying that kids should be in school no matter what, full stop, is just as bad to me as saying kids should not be in school no matter what. They're equally bad because they don't take into account things that are going on in the schools. All things being equal, if we could have every single school have kids required to wear KN95s and stick a HEPA filter or two in every classroom, and um, you know that you can't really social distance in the classroom, so forget that. But you know, eat outside as much as possible at lunch, and and that's about all you can probably do in a school, and do that. Then you know, if all schools are doing that, all kids should be attending school, but except the ones who have reasons not to. I believe that a virtual option, not a requirement, a virtual option should exist in every single school. And the reason I believe that is because there are some kids who, first of all, there's some kids who actually do better on virtual. There needs to be a, and when I say virtual option, I mean a virtual option that is a high quality option because there's a lot of crap virtual options out there, right? There's, it, some virtual has been done well and some has done very poorly. I actually taught at a virtual school back in 2012, long before the pandemic. 
And it was, it worked really well. Virtual school can be very effective when it's planned to be. And there are certain kids who thrive better in that. Kids who have special needs, kids who are not particularly needing the social aspect. If they're introverted and they can get the social that they need virtually. Um, but then you've got kids who have, you know, very uh, uh, health conditions that put them, even with a KN95 on every kid, even with the HEPA filters, they you, are so do you fragile. Think, do you think kids, do you really think kids, um, do you really think that kids should be masked at school? Yes, I do right now. And I do whenever it's high community prevalence. I do believe that. Um, for I mean, I'm talking like kindergarten and up, not in, I don't think that makes sense in preschool. Because the WHO, the WHO and Europe, Europe, they actually don't, don't do that. The WHO recommends uh, above six only. The CDC here recommends above two. And I, what I did, you may laugh at this. What I did is I decided to do my own real world evidence experiments in my kid's school. Okay. okay. This is my own observational study. So that's shady walking into the school and taking a look. And my school, our school, just to give you an idea, which is a little bit strange, I think it's 100% teachers vaccinated and 90% of all of the kids are vaccinated. Yeah, that's very unusual. It's very unusual. And the 10% who are not vaccinated, they get, they, they must test weekly. Just so okay. you know. Yeah, so that's extremely unusual. It's very unusual. Uh, I think 89% to be to be accurate vaccinated. And then, and they still have mask mandates, just so you know. Right. So I walked into the school and here's my observation. My observation is that A, all kinds of masks were being used. Right. That, and B, I, that is yeah. B, I would say probably less than 50% were wearing the masks properly. properly. You're going to wear po properly. It's kind of all over the place. Yeah. And I was trying to think, I was thinking like, this is the, how it happens in the real world. Like, you know, yes. you know, the reality is like, if it were me, I would say like, you know what? We recommend you wear it if you want to, but we can't mandate because nobody's really doing it right. Like, I'm not sure what the mandate See, is. Well, it depends on, to, to go back from it, what I was saying about the virtual, I withdrew my kids in July of 2021 um, because, uh, or 2020, actually. Yeah, yeah. 2020, well, we were yeah. virtual as well. Yeah. Or was, no, wait, no, 2021. I'm right. I'm trying we to actually, I, in, in yeah, our year, school, sorry. Yeah, in I, our school, the, the, the years run together. And the reason is my husband is immune compromised, as I mentioned before. We're in Texas. The governor here said, you're not allowed to require masks in school. And, you know, I actually was able to get my kids vaccinated a little bit earlier because one of them I put into a, a trial. He was in the Moderna trial. And the other one, I don't mind saying this because I did what I did. He's 11. I lied and said he was 12. I went to Walmart. I put down the wrong birth date and he got the vaccine at 11 because in our family, the risks of my husband getting infected were so great. You know, uh, ours is a special case. Not everyone has an immune compromised person at their house, but the problem is I had no choice but to withdraw my kids from school because the school was not doing the mitigation procedures necessary to protect my kids from getting coronavirus, bringing it home and killing their father. So that's why I wanted a virtual option. Now, I don't think any kids should be forced into a virtual option, but I think we can have a situation where we mitigate as much as possible in the schools. We offer the virtual option for those, you know, for the, for the edge cases that are a little bit more excessive. And the reason I think it's important to have the masks in the schools. First of all, our, our messaging on masks has been shit from the beginning, right? We, we did not adequately, you know, cloth masks 
are not very effective. They're, I mean, they're, I guess they're better than nothing sometimes, but they're, you know, they're not very effective. And the fact that we didn't address that much earlier was part of the problem. Um, I do agree that you're never going to have 100% compliance in a school. You're going to, they're kids, okay? But you don't look at, oh, there's five kids who have the mask below their nose. Therefore, why should we bother having a mask mandate? Because that's kind of like saying, you know, oh, well, there's going to be, you know, five, these five guys who are going to go and buy a gun anyway and shoot up a school. So why should we have any gun laws at all? That, that's the same argument, I think, right? I think the, the pushback, the pushback that maybe I have as, uh, or maybe others will have is that if your kids are vaccinated and even if you're obviously your, your husband is also vaccinated and you're vaccinated and even if they catch something despite the vaccination, the reality is it's going to be an infection. It's not going to be a disease, right? I mean, even with- No, not, that's not necessarily true. No, you can be vaccinated and get, you know, vaccines are not 100% for the disease either. You can get, you can have a vaccine and you can get the disease and you can end up hospitalized. It's much less likely than if you're unvaccinated, but it is possible. And when you're immune compromised, People who are immune compromised have very, in some, some people who are immune compromised, like people who are organ recipients, okay? They're taking medication that suppresses the immune system. I have a friend who got three vaccines. She still is testing with no ant, uh, antibodies because she's on three different drugs to, re, to, to, to suppress her immune system. So just because you're vaccinated, especially if you're immune compromised, that does not mean you won't die. You can still die. And that's why I, you know, those are the people that I think are actually getting left behind in the pandemic. We're just not even thinking about them. It's like, they don't matter. And that's, you know, we have to remember that this is a public health problem and public health can't be changed into individual health, which is what so many people want it to become. It's just not. I wish it were, you know, but it's to your not. Point, to, your point, <laughs> to your point about messaging, if you recall, the CDC director, Walensky, a couple of weeks ago was on TV. She's talking about the death were happening in people with comorbidities. Oh, God, comorbid. that was such do you, do you remember that? I mean, this was Oh, awful. I remember it very well because there was a whole bunch. I, I'm involved in a lot of, uh, you know, on Twitter, I follow a lot of disability advocates. And, um, you know, this there was, was not good. This was not good. Yeah. And that's, I mean, I've, you know, people want to read what I've written about this. I've written about immune compromised people and vaccines at National Geographic. And I, I did an op-ed at Wired about, about immune compromised people being left behind. Um, I tweeted one from one of my editors, John Gluckman at Medium, who did a good article on this in the Washington Post. You know, we have to recognize that people who have disabilities, people who are immune compromised, you know, these people have value in society. They matter too, just as the people who can't wear a mask because of disabilities that we can't forget them either. There are kids who have autism who do not have the ability to wear a mask because of sensory issues. And that's also important. And some of those kids may be better at home with virtual. Some of those kids may need to go to school, which means you do have to accommodate that also. And so I, I think there's just not enough awareness an acknowledgement and acceptance of all those different versions, right? The people who can't wear masks, the people who get the vaccine, but they're still not well protected. And, and, you know, that's why we have multiple mitigation measures, but all that nuance has been lost. It's turned into a political, you know, it's turned into political basketball or something. I don't, I don't know a good analogy, ping pong, whatever, you know, it, it's turned into a political game where discussion of masks 
it signifies a political identity or belief system rather than actually considering the evidence. You know, the evidence shows that cloth masks are next to worthless. Surgical masks are a lot better. KN95s are better than that. N95s are the gold standard, but you know what? They don't make N95s for kids. So don't talk about putting N95s for kids because they don't exist. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not even mentioning those things in a, in a rational way. We're just trying to score political points. You know, um, no, kids absolutely should not all be forced to stay home from school. But you know what has now happened in Texas because they don't require masks and they're not allowed to. They only, quote unquote, encourage them. We don't have high vaccination rates because we have a lot of vaccine hesitancy in this area. And my son's school district, even though he's he's in an all virtual school, but that virtual school is part of a regular public school district. They closed last Thursday and Friday. They didn't close because they were trying to prevent infection. They closed because they literally had so many adults that were sick that they couldn't keep a school open. And that's what you end up with when you get to the point where school districts are begging parents to apply for being subs and you're grabbing some random guy off the street to be a warm body in a classroom. Are you still, are those kids still getting the best education in in-person school? Are you telling me that in-person school is best no matter what, even if you have a sub for 17 days, that's different on each day because the kids, teachers are all sick. Cause that's not a better education. You know, do, maybe you need to go to virtual school for just two weeks, you know, let some of the, you know, flatten the curve a bit and then come back or, or rotate. But those solutions aren't being discussed. And instead, it's all, you know, it's, it's New York saying everybody stay home no matter what. And it's Texas saying everybody go to school no matter what. And in New York, you've got kids who need to be in school and could be in school safely. And in Texas, you've got kids who can't go to school because their teachers are so sick that the schools have shut down on their own. I mean, you know, it's... <laughs> We could talk about this forever. Oh, I, I, no, I, mean, I have long, I'm very passionate about this. I know. So but here's here's my last question for you, and then we'll we'll let you go, and hopefully we'll. Okay, sorry. I want to I want to bring you back. There's a lot to talk about. My last question for you, that's in 60 seconds or less. A year okay. from now, Tara Helly is with me on Healthcare Unfiltered. Where do you think we will be a year from now in 2023, February 2023? I, I don't know. I can't speculate because we don't know what variants will happen next. We could get a worse variant or maybe Omicron got us all so, you know, we, we have such high herd immunity from Omicron that the worst is behind us. Um, I really don't know. I, I, I don't want to speculate because, you know, anybody who, none of us could have protected, predicted Omicron, right? We were all, you know, it, as of a few days before Thanksgiving, my husband and I were discussing whether to send our kids back to school in January. Well, you know, the day after Thanksgiving, that all went to hell. So I don't, nobody saw Omicron coming, nobody. And if nobody saw that coming between now and a year, Jesus, what could happen? Who knows? I, I can't even. Well, that's another, excuse I don't, br- that's another excuse to bring you back. <laughs> okay. Sounds good. <laughs> Tara, thank you. Thank you so much for spending this hour with me. I really appreciate all of your insights and your willingness to come in and, and take some tough questions. No worries. Okay, folks, thank you so much for listening to Healthcare Unfiltered. And thank you for being part of today's podcast. I really appreciate your support. I appreciate uh, you tuning in every Tuesday morning and supporting this podcast. Let me know how I'm doing. You can direct message me on Twitter. You can also 
send me a note uh, on my website, www.shadinabhan.com. You can also send me an email to chadinabhan00 at outlook.com. I hope you appreciate this episode and you've learned a little bit. I mean, I think the, there are lots of nuances to all of these conversations. Very difficult to cover all of these issues in one podcast, but hopefully you've enjoyed it. Don't forget to subscribe to the show, rate the show, write a brief review, and refer your friends and colleagues to Healthcare Unfiltered. I'm going to leave you with a quote from Winston Churchill. Now, this is not the end. It is not even the beginning of the end but it is perhaps the end of the beginning. Until next time, take care.